Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Thus says the Lord my God, pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them, slay them and go unpunished. And each of those who sell them says, blessed be the Lord for I have become rich. They got me at a magnificent discount. It must have been Giving Tuesday. Or was it Black Friday? No, it was their day of thanks, in which they blessed the Lord, saying, I have become rich. Their own shepherds have no pity on them. Behold, I will cause them to fall, each into another's power, and into the power of his king, and they will strike the land, and I will not deliver them from their power. And their own shepherds will have no pity on them. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 6 to 10. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 209 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we talked about the symbolism and the significance of the role of Judas and Peter, and the deep betrayal, not just of Jesus, but of the leaders of the religious community towards the people of Judea. Peter and the chief priests, who should have cared for God's people with the Lord's instruction, instead cared for a temple made of stone, and were interested in collecting money. And the result was that the people of Judea were shut out of the kingdom. The reality is, in Galatians and elsewhere, frankly throughout the biblical text, beginning with the story of Exodus, God offers his people the opportunity to wipe the slate clean, to overlook their sins, to forsake the old slavery for a new slavery in his household. That is what the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins is all about. That is the meaning of God's mercy, that he would overlook your sins and give you an opportunity to stop screwing up. In Galatians, just like in Exodus, having been given that opportunity, the people want to go back to their old master. And that's what happens to Judas in Matthew, because he was forsaken 
by the leaders of the synagogue and abandoned by Peter, who is the apostle to the people of Judea, to the Jews. This parallels Peter's betrayal of Paul in Galatians and demonstrates why Peter is so, so greatly under condemnation in Matthew. And the funny thing is, Peter deals with this in the second epistle of Peter, toward the end of the biblical canon, in parallel with the Gospel of Matthew. Peter explains in Second Peter, referring to Judas, that after they have escaped the defilements of the world, this is Second Peter, Richard, chapter 2, verse 20, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Now, when I heard this in Second Peter, which is dealing with the theme of judgment and emphasizing that no one may judge before the time, which is a Pauline teaching. It's a Matthean teaching because it's a Pauline teaching. Because Second Peter is a corrective. On the one hand, the epistles of Peter are making sure that people hear Paul correctly, but they're also making sure that Peter makes up for having betrayed Paul. So he is emphasizing Paul's teaching, just like the epistle of James is a corrective that makes sure you don't misread Paul, but also ensures that James, before the Lord comes in judgment, is on the record as having once again endorsed Paul. But what really struck me about Second Peter, Rich, is that later in Matthew, we will hear the same thing with reference to the teaching of the resurrection versus those who are interested in something else those who are interested in making sure that the tomb is shut up so that the teaching can't get out, who are concerned that, how can I say this carefully, who assume that those who follow Jesus Christ operate on their worldly premise, and so therefore want to make sure they can't steal Jesus out of the tomb because their interest is to stop his teaching, and they exclaim, in the same terminology as St. Peter, that the last deception will be worse than the first. In Matthew, those who crucified Jesus are concerned that his followers will try to commit fraud. But the funny thing is, Matthew, the author of the Gospel, has the same concern, but from a different perspective. The irony of Matthew's statement, which is echoed in Second Peter, relates to Judas's suicide and Peter's betrayal. Because one way or another, when you turn your back on the gospel, it is tantamount to shutting Jesus up in the tomb and preventing the gospel from being preached. And we know from Father Paul's scholarship that the metaphor of the temple is the metaphor of the tomb where you lock up the Torah and prevent it from escaping out into the world. 
and the proclamation of the resurrection is to explode the teaching of Jesus Christ out unto the world where it can't be stopped or controlled by any earthly power. So in Matthew 27, you have the worldly authorities afraid of their shadow and afraid of a conspiracy that someone will fake the resurrection, trying to stop a fraud resurrection. But they don't really have to try because the followers of Jesus have already betrayed the true resurrection. It's a big comedy of errors and betrayal, which will ultimately fail because no one can stop the will of God the Father, which is already on the move to do what must be done. That statement from Second Peter is so helpful in understanding the gravitas of the gospel, that it's better to be without the gospel than it is to betray the gospel. It is better to have no gospel than to give up the gospel that one has. And it was helpful to have the example from Exodus because the people had not freedom, they had a new master whom they had to obey, but this master was bent on making sure that they survived in spite of the conditions, whereas Pharaoh ensured that they suffered in spite of the conditions. Yet they wanted to go back to the other master. Judas goes back to these, like you said, earthly authorities, Jewish authorities, authorities of the temple, guarding the tomb, metaphorically like you put it, Father, and they had no teaching for him. They had no teaching for him. That's why I actually have been feeling sad this whole time that we've been going through chapter 27. I felt sad with Peter, but since last episode, I've been feeling more sad about Judas because he comes to them realizing that he had betrayed the gospel and he had betrayed his teacher and he betrayed it for a teaching that wasn't there. He went to this temple and it was empty as opposed to, like you said, Father, the tomb that's empty where Jesus and the gospel cannot be contained but they have to go out into the world whereas this temple is vacuous. There's no teaching. When he says, what do I do? They say, you see, that's your problem. They've got no solution. They've got no teaching. And how sad it is, really profoundly sad and bitter to see that Judas gave up this teaching where there was a content, where there was an obedience to be had, whereas here there's nothing. It's completely empty, and it's just about 30 pieces of silver going this way or that way, and the life of an innocent person is non-functional for these people. It's profoundly sad for me. It's critical that those hearing this text don't make the mistake of disobeying the Gospel of Matthew, of missing the lesson of Second Peter, and more importantly, of the epistle of Judas, and I want to say the epistle of Judas, not Jude, because that transliteration of the name in English is offensive to me. Why in some places do you transliterate the Greek name Iudas as Judas, 
But when it comes to the epistle of Judas, you say Jude, because you're afraid that people will confuse the names, and it would be scandalous to imagine that there's any connection between the epistle of Jude and the character Judas in the Gospels. Well, I have news for you. The way names work in the New Testament, whoever the character is to whom the epistle of Judas is ascribed in the story, it is intentional wordplay that you have an epistle ascribed to James and then two epistles ascribed to Peter and then you have three epistles ascribed to John, and then you have another epistle that is ascribed to the name Euthus. That, my friends, is powerful. And they come at the end of the canon before the Apocalypsis, which is a fulfillment of Paul's teaching, and a fulfillment of the Gospel of Matthew, and a fulfillment of the Epistle of Judas, which is a bookmark at the end of the canon reminding you that no one may judge, not even the Archangel Michael has a right to judge when he casts out Satan. No one may judge before the time. So you're sitting here listening to Dr. Benton and I preach the content of Matthew, which lambasts Peter and Judas. And because you are seeking a false mercy in defense of your own sins, you are saying, how can you be so hard on them? Because you're judging before the time, just like the characters in the story. You have no right to defend or excuse or condemn. Just think about how the canon itself is structured. The last corrective you hear before the Apocalypsis is from the pillars and from a letter ascribed to Euthus. So please, take Scripture seriously. It's much more intelligent than you give it credit for. All this talk about mercy is cheap talk. Scripture puts you in a box. There is no yesterday except the commandment. There is no tomorrow except the judgment. And so you stand in that box on the same level as the prostitute and the thief alongside Peter and Judas and the rest. Well, what do you do with that, Father Mark? You read Torah and do what it says. And then you go to sleep. And then you get up the next morning. And what do you do, Dr. Benton? (laughs) What does Scripture tell us to do when we get up in the morning? And when we go out of our house, and when we walk along the way. Not only do we do Scripture, we recite Scripture so that our children hear, so that our children have a shot, because there's a teaching there. I was really happy when you saw this connection, Father, between the Yudas, the epistle, and Yudas, this character, because if nothing else, if you're looking carefully, you say, okay, I know Paul, I see why he's there. Peter, James, John. Okay, yeah, no, I understand why they're there. But Judas, like, why him? 
And then the way he introduces himself, Yesu Christu Dulos, which I think actually is hard to translate because in Greek you can either say a slave of Jesus Christ or you can say of Jesus Christ a slave. Either way, it means the same thing in Greek, but the fact is in Greek, the way it comes out, it's Judas Yesu Christu Dulos. So at first it sounds like the Judas of Jesus Christ, but then it has the slave and you have to go and reread it. So it fools you. This is the Judas of Jesus Christ. This In the story here, we have the Judas who betrayed Jesus Christ and brought Jesus Christ to his demise. There's this play here on the two faces of Judas. Judas also means Jew or Judah. Then in the canon of the New Testament, it's juxtaposed with Evreos, because we have the epistle to the Hebrews. But this other Judas, this brother of James, who is this guy? Like, he's not Peter, James, and John, and Paul. I know that, but he gets an epistle? We're not handing out epistles to everybody. This isn't Oprah. So we have this name that means Judah. We have this name that parallels this character who betrayed Jesus and killed himself for the sake of money, who himself was betrayed by those who held the teaching in the temple. It's a complex character if we look into it and really drill down into how he is appearing. If we want to talk about Judas, we can also talk about the Judas who laid with his daughter-in-law thinking she was a prostitute back in Genesis, the son of Jacob, the one who sold his brother Joseph into slavery, who betrayed his father by selling this one to his own death. So there are many layers when one starts to look at these characters, make the connections, because the text invites us to make these kinds of connections and to think what might be going on between these different points in the storyline. And here we have a Judas who is very specific to this context, but then who connects with these other contexts because of the use of this name, especially this weird one-chapter epistle after Peter before the revelation. It's very peculiar, and the connection is clear that this is someone who was a slave of Jesus Christ, pertaining to Jesus Christ, and you can't help but juxtapose him to the other Judas that we have in Matthew 27. The only reason I brought verse 64 in early in chapter 27, Rich, is because here already at the beginning of the chapter, we're dealing with the scandal of the investment of silver in the temple. That's the metaphor of the 30 pieces of silver in the temple, him throwing them into the temple. Because there really is a trade-off. And I was very clear and emphatic last week, and I'm going to keep stressing it. It's something that is central to Scripture. It is central to Scripture because the proclamation against the temple is a proclamation against institution. It is a proclamation against organization. It is a proclamation against empire and nation, against principality and power, against any human structure or system. Because if it is designed by human hands, it is a mechanism of oppression and corruption. Scripture is interested in turning the heart of stone back to a heart of flesh. 
which is the way God created us with hearts of flesh, not of stone. We like to make things into stone or out of stone. That's what we are. The connection at the end of 27 with respect to the resurrection is that when you make the emphasis on the construction of the temple and collecting money to build the temple, you are collecting money to undermine the proclamation of the resurrection. When Judas turns his back on the forgiveness of sins and goes back to Egypt, he is undermining the proclamation of the resurrection. When Peter entered into the courtyard of the high priest, he was turning his back on the proclamation of the resurrection and contributing to the system, the institution, the construction the organization, the program, the agenda that exists despite itself and its stated intentions to suppress the proclamation of the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, which liberates slaves and rescues people like Judas from bondage. And once you've received that teaching and you turn your back on it, the last situation is far worse than the first. And so Judas and Peter, in preaching correctly the antidote to their mistake, once and for all time at the end of the canon before the coming judgment, are presented to us as the final threat before the judgment and the final reminder. And insofar as Judas, as that little stub, that little bookmark before Jesus comes back, stands out as this little threat and reminder of what it's like for a dog to go back to its own vomit, which is what happens here there may still be hope for Judas if a few of us are saved on account of his preaching. The chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Well, here's what I think, Richard. I think it's great that they followed their standard operating procedures and could check the box off that they didn't dirty their hands. I think it's wonderful that they had a council meeting and made sure everybody's voice was heard. They conferred. So far, we're following all the rules of institution. We checked with HR. We checked the rule book. The lawyers are all on board, and everybody was able to confer. And the best part is, we managed to still invest the money even though it was dirty money. <laughs> that sounds like corporate efficiency if ever there were such a thing. Again, the process and the standard operating procedure that they go through, I feel sad when I read this chapter because when it came to the death of an innocent person, 
they, they had no law so that they could weigh into it. The fact that there is no teaching about the death of an innocent person, but there is a teaching about what is dirty money and what you can do with this money or that money. Is it really the job of these people to be accountants? Because, you know, accountants, their job is to make sure that the money goes in the right column. I always tell people, accountants, it's not about math. Accountants is about categorization. Do you accrue this to the next year or to the last month? Do you put it in this category? Do you put it in that category? This is what accountants do. That's not math. For these people, this life or that life, it didn't matter. The innocent life of Jesus didn't matter. The ongoing life of Judas, it didn't matter. But what column do we put these pieces of silver in? Are they pieces of silver that we can use for the general fund? Do we have to use them for the slush fund? Well, you know, the donor didn't exactly earmark them, but they were for a bad reason. I mean, why was it for blood? This is also the irony. Why was it for blood? <laughs> because I'm wondering, where do you get money to pay for blood? Uh, was that from the general fund? Was that from the slush fund? They can't just put the money back into the fund that they pulled it out of. I mean, this is what breaks my heart, is that this is a discussion about accounting. It's about accounting. When one innocent and one guilty life were both lost, and the one who died second, the guilty one, we don't know what would have happened if he had been given the chance at receiving a true teaching. The story doesn't allow us to muse about what would have happened with Judas. That's for fan fiction. But what we do see is that... Or theology. Or the, <laughs> so what we do see is that Judas was allowed to die. Jesus was allowed to die. And the discussion is, well, what do we do with this silver? not what we do with the lives of people. And I have to say, this is truly the way that institutions run. I mean, for those people who don't work in corporate America, I know one of the shocks that I had to endure when I went into corporate America is that the seat, the theoretical seat where a worker sits on the balance sheet of how many workers do we have at our company that position on that spreadsheet is called a headcount. It doesn't refer to a person. It doesn't refer to a job. It doesn't refer to a soul. It refers to a headcount. This is a way that we bleach the lives out of the accounting. This is what happened when we had the financial crisis, where we wanted to give money so that the bank's balance books looked good, but the balance books of the people who bought those houses didn't matter. The lives of the people who were kicked out of the house because they couldn't make the columns match, those lives were forfeited. And this happens time and time again when money is the center. And as we see here, those accountants don't have much of a teaching when it comes to life and death, when it comes to following a teaching when it comes to obedience they only know their money then that which was spoken through jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled and they took the 30 pieces of silver the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of israel 
and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord had directed me. The text that Matthew is applying here is a text applied. It is not a prediction fulfilled. I want to say that again. It is a text applied, not a prediction fulfilled. So, the responsibility of the one hearing this use of the prophetic text is to go back and hear what is being said in the original context so that you understand what is being applied. I mean, we've been doing the podcast for almost eight years now, Rich, and I don't have the head or the patience to deal with excerpts of Scripture anymore. Ten years ago, I might have, but today I don't because I realize everything taken out of context is taken out of context, period. So this quote about 30 pieces of silver and the sons of Israel, I have no idea what it means in Matthew until I go back and understand what it means in Jeremiah. And well, <laughs> while Matthew refers to it as having come from Jeremiah, it actually comes from Zechariah, which is even a bigger puzzle. Most people would hear this and start talking about the wonders of grace and how Jeremiah foresaw the future, and that has nothing to do with anything. Or they would, I don't know, look up a picture of the modern Israeli coin and explain Judeo-Christianity to me. That doesn't help either. But when I look at this passage in Zechariah, this is what I hear, just to get some brief context that fits very nicely what just happened to Judas. Thus says the Lord my God, pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slay them and go unpunished. And each of those who sell them says, Blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich, and their own shepherds have no pity on them, for I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord, but I will cause the men to fall each into another's power and into the power of his king, and they will strike the land, and I will not deliver them from their power. So I pastured the flock, doomed to slaughter, hence the afflicted of the flock, and I took for myself two staffs, the one I called favor and the other I called union. So I pastured the flock, then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month, for my soul was impatient with them, and their soul was also weary of me. Then I said, I will not pasture you. What is to die, let it die. And what is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated. And let those who are left eat one another's flesh. I took my staff favor and cut it in pieces to break my covenant which I had made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day, and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. I said to them, If it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out thirty shekels of silver as my wages." Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the thirty shekels of silver and threw them to the potter, 
in the house of the Lord. Briefly and clearly, we're hearing the story of a flock that is doomed, that the Lord has abandoned to its own doom because it is getting what it deserves for disobeying the word of the Lord. And the Lord's interest is that in their condemnation, they know that they are condemned because they disobeyed the word of the Lord. That is the lesson of Judas and the lesson of Peter, who forsook Judas, and a warning that both Judas and Peter will get what they deserve for disobeying the commandment and turning their back on it. The sheep suffer because the shepherds were disobedient to the Lord. Because the shepherds were disobedient, there was nothing left to feed the sheep. But most importantly, the Lord himself was the one who decided there would be nothing left. And I mentioned this before in these passages when we see these reflections of the prophecies here in Matthew, in that as much as we might want to say, oh, these priests are just nasty, no good people. We are, actually. (laughs) We have to also say that this is part of how God planned things. And we can say what God planned and God intended because we imagine we can read God's mind through ESP. No, God wrote it down and then did it. There's no question of that he intended this. This is what Matthew is saying, that yes, it's wicked, but God is clearly allowing it to happen. God is clearly playing a part here because he wrote down that this is exactly what was going to happen. So if we want to say, boy, it's too bad that these priests were like this, that if only these priests had been nicer, if only these priests didn't care about money more than anything else, no. God knew before their great-grandparents were born because this is how human beings are and the wisdom of the prophets in Zechariah 11, namely, was laid out long before this scene. So Matthew is depicting that God's will is still functional. In God's will, things take place that seem abhorrent to human beings. Thanks to Matthew, we see that this is precisely one of those moments. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.